When all the idealism vanishes, when the raw reality that God's children can fail horribly drenches us with spiritual ice water, how should we react? Today's discussion takes us into the realistic world of horizontal living between believers. Dave Woodson, our study leader, seeks to help his own church family and all of us to realize that the New Testament honestly faces the way believers actually are, but it goes on to proclaim the miracle of what we can become. All of our eyes need to be worshiping and adoring the Savior. And all of the unity in a church family flows from that focus on the resurrected Christ who is presently living among his people in the presence of his Holy Spirit. Now that has to do with a vertical dimension. Every one of us need to be asking ourselves, in the vertical dimension of my life, am I adoring the Savior? Am I living my life to praise him? But that vertical dimension needs to express itself in the horizontal dimension of living with other believers, of living together. Because God has called us not just to worship him individually. In fact, I was talking to an evangelical pastor last night who was very concerned about the fact that evangelicals tend to know a lot about worshiping the Lord as individuals, about having our quiet time, about praying in our own quiet times of life. We have a good individual relationship with the Lord, but many times we don't realize how important it is to realize that we need to worship God with one another. And that's really where the difficulty comes, because you start to interact with other believers, and it gets rugged, because other believers are human beings, and other human beings let you down. They still have rough edges, and so we talked several weeks ago about the need, first of all, to decide that we're going to devote ourselves to living with one another. You see, several of you will say, I can't find any friends. I can't seem to get part of that group. He who wants to have friends must show themselves friendly. And what we all need to do is to make a decision. I'm going to give even if no one gives back. If you want to get to know one another, you're going to have to invite people over to your home, not once, not twice, probably five or six times. And they might never invite you over to their home. But if you keep opening your own home and you keep reaching out and you make a decision, I'm going to live with one another. I'm going to live for other people. I'm going to ask not what people can do for me, but what I can do for them. And I'm going to expect nothing in return. As you begin to start to allow the Holy Spirit to produce that kind of a lifestyle in your heart, you'll find out that as you lose your life, you'll get killed a few times. You'll get brutalized a few times. But you know what else will happen? You'll find out that you're loved. If you're willing to sacrifice yourself and give yourself to one another, expecting nothing in return, you'll find out that when you lose it all, you got it all back. It's one of the great paradoxes of the Christian life. The only way you can love is to give up your life. You see, if I choose to have a friend because of what that friend can do for me, in other words, if I want to be friends with somebody because of the benefit that I think they will bring to my life, because of the financial prosperity they might bring to me, or because they have nice things for me to play with, if that's the basis of my friendship, it's not friendship. 
The only way to really have a friend is to have a friend that you just give to, though they might give nothing back. The best friendship is two people who give 100%, 100%, expecting nothing in return. They lose their lives for Christ and for one another. And what happens in that kind of a relationship is you both get yourselves in a beautiful, marvelous way. He who loses his life finds it. And those principles are never jettisoned by the Word of God. And that's what we were challenging you to do. I'd like you to make a decision. I need to make a decision that I'm going to live for other people. I'm going to live for one another. I'm not going to live for myself. By the way, that's the hardest thing for us as people to do. As Americans, we're being taught, live for yourself. Build your life for yourself. Plan for yourself. And God is saying he who would try to save his life will lose it. But if we're going to make that decision to live for one another, we talk about the fact that we need to accept one another. What it means to accept someone else is that somebody comes in that you don't know, you take the initiative to go over and talk to them. Remember that message we gave about how hard it is to break the ice. I tried to share with you very honestly. I appear to be a very outgoing person. I appear to be someone that when we're in a group can talk readily and the words are right there. But deep in my heart, the genuine person I am, I would rather be home reading a book all by myself. That's what I really like to do. I love books. I'm kind of like a monk that way. And if I had my druthers 99% of the time, I'd rather be alone reading than out with people. And if I'm with people that I don't know, it makes me feel very uncomfortable. And all of you are the same way. Because we feel insecure. We don't, we don't know how they're going to react to us. And what I want to challenge you to do is to face that. I have to face that. But I want to be honest with you. I have emotions in me that say, no, I don't want to do that. It'd be really neat to sit home and watch TV. How many of you ever wrestle with those thoughts? How many of you ever wrestle with, man, I just think I'd like to just stay at home. I'm just tired. Brothers and sisters, life is too short to be tired. You're going to miss out on the greatest experiences of life. I found that some of the most exciting, some of the most invigorating, some of the most meaningful things that God's gotten me involved in, emotionally, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to go to Poland one single bit. I've never wanted to go to Poland. I didn't have any desire. I love Germany. I love Israel. I didn't really, who cares about Poland? God says, I want you to go to Poland. It was a fantastic week. The Lord used to open up so many new ideas of what he was doing in the world. You're going to find that. You know, my heart goes out for you. Some of you are letting life slip right out of your hands, sitting alone. You want to have someone show up at your funeral? Then go to parks when people are gathered together. You know who shows up at funerals? People that you sat with on a Sunday afternoon and ate ice cream with and praised God with and shared life with. I have never gone to a funeral yet that had TVs all over the church. They just don't come. TVs never come to funerals. You understand what I'm saying? We're all wrestling with that. In a mechanized age, we're all wrestling with holding up instead of reaching out. As you live with one another, you're going to have to forgive one another, and that's going to lead us to the fact that we're going to need to restore one another. 
You know, one of the things that we need to realize as we live together is that as believers, we need to face the reality that there's going to be sin among believers. I want you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. This morning I want to talk about one of the hardest areas for me to deal with in my life. It really is. And that's the fact that, that as believers we fail. You see, we, we make this decision to devote ourselves to one another. We start to accept one another. We learn to forgive one another. But then as we're forgiving one another, we find out as we're living with this group of believers that there's someone that we invest our life in. We might meet with them every week. We might study God's Word together. We might pray together. And suddenly that person begins to wander away. Just last night, one of the leaders in our church was sharing me, David, to read the Times Herald. I said, no. He said, write down the big leading article. One of the pastors of one of the Baptist churches in Waco was just exposed to be a pervert, a, he was a homosexual. His wife was having illicit affairs. That crushes me. You know why it crushes me? Because all across Waco, the unbelievers say, see there? See there? It's just a farce. They're just Elmer Gantries. That's all those pastors are. They just give all this gobbledygook about believing the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, and they enjoy the finances all the way to the bank. That's what the unbelievers in Waco were saying. Makes you mad. Makes you angry. My first response on hearing that was, boy, I could get that guy. That's horrible. How could someone do that? You know why? Because of pride. You see, the fact that God's children sin is something that challenges every one of our faith. You see, when a believer starts to fall into sin and to act like a child of the devil, it causes every one of us to say, maybe the thing isn't true. Maybe Jesus really isn't who He says He is. Maybe Jesus really isn't the answer. Maybe it is just a farce. Those ideas come into our minds which is exactly what Satan wants us to do. The New Testament recognizes and deals with the reality that believers sin. And I want to talk to us about the attitude that we need to have when believers do sin. Let's begin by looking at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It says, brothers, we are talking about a family matter today. We're talking about brothers and sisters in the Lord. Brothers. If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. And what Paul is saying, first of all, is that we need to face the reality that there is sin among believers. You see, some of you might have the idea, and some of us can have the idea, that you receive Christ as your Savior, you're born into God's family, you're really excited, you're joyful, you say, man, praise the Lord. And you're not going to ever have a problem with temptation again. You'll never be tempted to look at dirty magazines again. You'll never be tempted to steal again. You'll never be tempted to lose your temper again. You'll never be tempted to cuss again. And that goes on for about two weeks. And then it just seems like the whole ball comes unraveled. What happens is there's a lot of believers that don't understand what happens when you're born again. When you're born again... God creates a new person inside of you. And that new person is just like Christ. And from God's perspective, as God looks at your life, 
You are justified. You are declared righteous based upon what Christ did for you. As far as eternity is concerned, you are whole and perfect and righteous and clean. But God has seen fit that as far as everyday living, the practical reality of your life as you live day by day, is you and I both have a long way to go. You see, the Bible does teach sinless perfection. God's destiny for every one of you in this room is sinless perfection. That's God's destiny for every one of us. But as long as we live in this life, as long as we live in this life, there's a stinky old nature that's dead, that's ineffective. There's no reason in the world why it should have dominion over us. This smelly old corpse keeps stinking everything up. And he's stinking some things up in our church family. And in my own life. In fact, the more that I grow in the Lord, the more the Holy Spirit causes me to realize how stinky this old nature is. Some of my most spiritual moments will be the time when I'm also the worst person you can imagine. In other words, right when I'm teaching the Word of God, like over in Poland, the Holy Spirit begins to really move as I'm teaching John 3. And as I'm teaching John 3, I can start to see them understand what it means he must be born again and why Nicodemus need to be born again. And right at that high point where I'm expressing the thing that I'm really gifted to do in God's family, right at that point, there's another part of me that will be saying, wow, you're even doing it in another culture. Now that stinks. What is that? Pride. I find one of the preeminent things in my life It's the concept It all depends upon God. And the work of God among God's people is like the holy ark. In other words, if I'm teaching a group of God's people and the Holy Spirit moves among them to build them up in God's family, and someone comes up to me and says, the Holy Spirit really spoke to my heart. The Holy Spirit really touched my life. That's a holy ark. That's like Moses when, when he was used of God. It's a holy thing. And one of the things is you never touch a holy ark. You don't ever say, well, it's because of my great ability. And I'll find, I'll make a decision in my heart. I'm not going to take credit for that. I'm going to give praise to the Lord. And I'll be able to maintain that for a month. And then I'll slip. And I'll communicate, maybe to a young intern that I'm working with. Wow, wasn't I good? That's wrong. But it's the reality of our life. And you see, by being honest with you about it, You can pray with me about it. There's no deception. I'm not sitting before you and saying, I'm not struggling. You all follow me because I've got all the answers. I don't. I'm not perfect and none of you are either. We're saved. We are saved by grace. But every one of us have a stinking side. And we need one another to deal with that stinking side. Now let me just say, first of all, how we can deal with that stinking side. Number one, you'll never deal with that stinking old nature by making rules and regulations. A lot of church family thinks that the way to deal with homosexuality and immorality and stealing and pride and all those things is to make rules against it. Now just imagine a rule, thou shalt not get angry. How many of you have found it's really effective? New Year's resolution, thou shalt not get angry this year. How many of you have ever found that to work? How many of you have ever made a commitment? I will not lust after a woman this year. I will not covet this year. I will absolutely not covet during the next week. Do rules and regulations deal with those passions? No. You see, you have to have rules like I'll wash my hands carefully. 
I'll wear nice clothes. I'll cut my hair. You have to have rules that fit. But the things that really bother us, the things that are really destroying us, can't be overcome by rules. And that's why Paul said that you'll never overcome the flesh, you'll never overcome the stinking old man by rules and regulations. So other people respond and say, well, if I can't overcome it by rules and regulations, I know the way I'll deal with it. I'll just give in to it. I'm saved by grace. God loves me. I'm accepted by God. I'll just give in to it. I'll just express it all. I'll let it all hang out. That's called license. And that's not the answer either, because sin will destroy you. He who gives himself to sin becomes the slave to sin. So neither legalism, which is the belief that you can overcome the old man by rules and regulations, nor license, which is the belief that you just give in to the old man, neither one of those legalisms or license can conquer the old man. Paul says in verse 25 of chapter 5 of Galatians how we can do it, how we can overcome the old man. Since we live by the Spirit... Let us keep in step with the Spirit. The way to overcome your old man is to day by day, moment by moment, allow the Holy Spirit control of your life. Be honest with Him and let the Holy Spirit control. It's the only way. And we need to really pray for one another. Today as you're sitting there, you're either in tune with the Holy Spirit, you're either walking closely with Him, He's either controlling your life or you're controlling your life. And if you're controlling your life, then I've got news for you and I've got news for me. Somebody else is really controlling our life. Because he's a lot stronger. Satan is a lot stronger. And so if the Holy Spirit doesn't control, then we become a slave to our own passions and to ultimately the satanic kingdom. So I want to challenge you. Day by day, moment by moment, and it's a walk It's keeping in step with the Spirit. Now, what happens when we get out of step with the Holy Spirit? We fall into sin. And what the Scripture is saying is that all of us must recognize, according to 1 John 1.8, that if anybody says that they never sin, they're a liar. They know not the truth. In fact, John Peterson told my older brother one day, he said, Don, if anybody ever tells you that they're super spiritual, or they ever come across you that they're super spiritual, watch out, because they're probably lying to you about a lot of other things. There's a lot of truth in that. He who says they're without sin is a liar and doesn't know the truth. Now, the normal course of the Christian life is that you're living the Christian life, you get out of step with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit prompts you, and you ask God to forgive you. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're in a husband-wife relationship, maybe as a wife, you get really angry with your husband. And you have to say, Lord Jesus, forgive me for that. And then you have to go to your husband and say, Honey, I'm sorry. I acted in the old nature. Would you forgive me? And that's the way a healthy relationship goes. You know, maybe two or three times during the day, you know, you have to say, Man, I'm sorry. You know, I have to say, Mary, I just, I'm uptight. I was uptight about something else. Would you forgive me? what the Scripture means when it says confessing your faults one to another. You see, if you're healthy, if you're walking close to the Lord, you won't be so uptight about admitting the fact that you fail and your need to ask for, for forgiveness. But what happens when a believer starts to walk out of step with the Holy Spirit for a long time? 
And other believers start to become aware of it. And that's the kind of thing that the Apostle Paul is talking about here. He's talking about not someone that just slips and stumbles along the way. He talked about someone where Satan takes his net and throws the net right over the believer. I mean, he has this believer ensnared and just captured. They're like, a, they're like a beaver that's been trapped in this horrible trap. What do you do then? The Lord says that we need to not condemn, we need to not reject, but we need to restore. You see, the Scripture says that we're in this together. You see, if one of our family members, if one of our body here in this church family moves away from the Lord, slips away, is trapped in sin. All of us are trapped. We're all in it together. Have you noticed how many times that the Old Testament saints would pray for the entire nation of Israel? A plurality. It's something that as individual believers in America, we don't understand very well. The idea of a corporate body. See, one of the responses I have, if someone falls into a sin, I say, man, it deserves them right. I could see it coming. Have any of you ever reacted? I knew that was coming. I knew that individual 20 years ago. I could see those little inklings of what was going to happen. They deserve it. Man, if they would have listened to me 20 years ago, they wouldn't have had that problem. Let's forget it. Have any of you ever had those kind of feelings? Those feelings are wrong. Because this scripture is saying that any of us, it says if someone is trapped in a sin, and the implication is it could be me and it could be you. You've all heard the old story. You had a pastor that preached for 20 years about immorality. And man, every Sunday it was immorality. Every single Sunday. Boy, terrible immorality. All the scourge of immorality. And he runs off with his secretary. Why? He was preaching to himself every week. The area that we get the most strong about is the area many times that we're the most vulnerable in. Some of you say, horrors, homosexuality. Man, I could never do anything like that. Yes, you could. You say, oh no, I would never do that. That's horrible. It's perverted. You could do it. So could I. Because there is none righteous, no, not one. And Satan is so powerful. He is so deceptive. He is so cunning. That if we don't lean upon the risen, exalted Son of God, there's not one of us in this room that couldn't fall into sin. One of the fellows was about two years behind me in seminary. He was pastoring a church a lot like ours. A church that I really looked to for an example. His perversion was so bad it was against the law. And he's serving time in Huntsville. He used to sit where I'm sitting in a church family like this. Now watch right at you. Like, well, I could, that would never happen to me. Yes, it could. It could happen to any one of us. How can we keep it from happening? How can we be in this together? The scripture says that we need to face the reality that believers will sin. We need to be aware of the danger of self-deception. We need to keep in step with the Spirit. And then we need to restore believers when they begin to slip away. Let's talk in closing about this ministry of restoring and not rejecting. First of all, I want to deal with the question, who in the world should restore? Well, let's look at the verse, Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if someone is trapped or caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. When it comes to this business of restoration, who are the spiritual ones? You say, well, David, it says, let those who are spiritual. Don't you see it right there? It says, let those who are spiritual, the elders and deacons of Midlothian Bible Church, and they're the ones that need to take care of all this. And then you know what you do? 
You say, well, they're really not so spiritual after all. I saw them really fail. Brothers and sisters, you know who the spiritual one is that's to restore? The one who's walking in the Spirit. There's nothing in here that says it's the guy that's known the Lord for the last 50 years and hasn't slipped in the last 20. You know the one who is spiritual according to the Apostle Paul? You. If you're walking in step with the Spirit. Are you walking in the step with the Spirit today? Are you in love with Christ? Are you seeking day by day to be conformed to His image? I didn't ask you if you were perfect yet. I just told you earlier in this message, none of you are perfect, and I'm not perfect either. And watch out for the person that says they are perfect. We're all on the way. But if you're walking in step with the Spirit, in Paul's analysis, you are a spiritual person because you're walking in conformity with the Holy Spirit. Those who are spiritual are those that are walking by the Spirit's power. Not a spiritual elite. We're not talking here about having church courts. I see you talking about the idea of restoration. Automatically, a church family starts to think of having like an inquisition. That's not what we're talking about. You know what we're talking about here? A believer that's walking in touch with the Holy Spirit, that is living intimately with other believers, In our church families, in our individual families, are we living close enough to one another to notice when someone has fallen and broken their spiritual legs because of sin? We must recapture this intimate solidarity among God's people. During our lesson, did you think of someone who needs your tender touch of restoring grace? Why not give them a call and set up a time to get together? I'm thankful that the Bible realistically records what believers' lives were like in the first century, and as we study these biblical accounts, we discover that we are not that different from the Corinthians or the Galatians. Therefore, we too can learn to keep in step with the Spirit. God is calling us to do this in a family of close brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't go it alone. Reach out, be accountable, be a godly friend.